Amen. Thank you, Warren. I want to focus on that one verse in there. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Here for our time that we have remaining. Scientific research says if you're like most people, you have a clear, hands-down, favorite topic for most of your conversations. Yourself. (laughs) On average, people spend 60% of conversations talking about themselves. And this figure jumps to 80% when communicating through social media platforms. A recent study in Scientific America periodical tells why we like talking about ourselves so much, and the answer is because it feels good. Researchers from Harvard asked 195 participants that talk about themselves or other people. And as they talked, they had connectors on their heads there that scanned their brains, and the researchers uh, took that information. The result of that study was that talking about ourselves, or self-disclosure here, lit up the parts of our brain associated with motivation and reward. These are the same parts of our brain that are associated with pleasures like comfort food, like fried chicken and pizza or macaroni and cheese or in the drug world, a hit from cocaine. Same part. The article put it this way, activation of this system in the brain when discussing the self suggests that self-disclosure, talking about yourself, may be inherently pleasurable and that people may be motivated to talk about themselves more than other topics, no matter how interesting or important these non-self topics may be. In other words, we love talking about ourselves because it feels good. It's a neurological buzz that we feel. Because deep inside of us is rooted and we have a bent toward living for ourselves. I'd like you to look at that text on the screen. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. This is our text this morning. And what I want to do is kind of take the little words of that verse and break them down this morning. Notice the first part. And that he died for all. He. What are you talking about? I want you to listen to a summary of the story of the Bible in about five minutes here. And then let me explain who that he is. And if you can remember three things, the number three, the number two, and the number one. Three, two, and one. I think you'll be able to remember the story of the Bible and God's plan. You see, in the beginning, there were three. Always have been three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not three different gods. One God who is an unbreakable unity of three. A tri-unity, or as we in the Christian faith describe it, a trinity. The trinity is not a math problem. It's not an ancient riddle. It is the good news that God is love and forever has had love for each member of those people in the trinity, of those persons in the trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Forever the Father has loved His Son in the unity of the Spirit. And that's a picture of what eternal life is. The Father has always been loving His Son with the joy of the Holy Spirit. But this love was too good to just keep to themselves. The God of love loves to share who He is. 
And so the Father made a world through His Son and by His Spirit because He wants billions more people to join His family. You and I were created at the beginning to hear these words. You are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter with whom I am well pleased. And the meaning of life was wrapped up in that understanding that God had made us to have fellowship with Him. So the meaning of life is to find our place with God, the triune God, our place among the three and one. So three. And the next number I want you to remember is two. Because the story of the Bible and the story of the world is a story of two representatives. Two representatives. God placed one man at creation, Adam, at the head of the world to bless it and to care for it. But through a misplaced trust in and the things that God created instead of the Creator Himself, Adam turned from God, he turned in on himself, and he plunged the world through disobedience into death and curse. It was a cosmic fall from grace. And so we all share in this broken humanity, and we feel the curse of this broken world. The human race is like a Christmas tree that's been, that's been cut down and, 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 and ripped out of its natural, uh, natural habitat. You might think when you take that Christmas tree and put it in your house that you're dressing it up with a, with the fancy decorations, but how many times you gotta water that and how many times you gotta start vacuuming up the needles in your home, right? It's dying. It's dying. And the truth is because we have separated ourselves from the life of God, the Bible says we are dying. We are spiritually perishing. We're headed for the spiritual dump. And so all humans, the race of Adam, stands under God's condemnation. God has pronounced an eternal no to that way of life, of living separate from Him, of wanting to go our own way. Because He wants what is best for us, wants something very good for us. And He wants us to find our life in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the second representative. Because if Adam represented us in his disobedience to God, there came one, Jesus Christ, who we celebrate at Christmas. He came, Jesus, God, who has always existed, came as a man. He entered into our broken world and he took up our lost cause. And like a champion who wins the contest for us, Jesus stepped into our shoes, as Warren just read, so that we could live. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live so that we could live forever. Then on the cross, Jesus Christ took up the cursed death that I should have died. The payment that I should have taken. And He summed up Adam's nature and the curse that came upon Adam and He took it down to the hellish death it deserves. But three days later, He rose again bodily, not mythically, not 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 in a symbol, but He physically rose again to a new life beyond death and curse. And today He invites us into His life that He's always shared and enjoyed and into His family. So, one God in three persons. Two representatives. Adam, Jesus Christ. And then that leaves us with one. Because right now the Bible says, you and I, when we're born, we are born with Adam. We are born into his progeny. We're born into what Adam lived and what Adam lived for. But that's a problem. Because we're like chips off the old block. We share in His selfishness. We share in the results of selfishness. His death is cursed. We're united to Adam. And we have no life and no hope in and of ourselves. But Jesus comes to offer a stunning oneness with Himself. 
And so like with that Christmas tree, we can be snipped out of the Adam tree and we can be grafted into the Christ tree. Or think of another picture of oneness. It's it, We can be one with Jesus like in a marriage. Imagine a marriage between a wealthy prince and a very poor uh, girl, a pauper. She's filthy, she's poor, she has a shameful name, she has a hopeless future. Yet the prince loves her and he offers himself to her in marriage. And as soon as they are united, what happens? Well, he takes all her debts. She gets all his riches. She is, he covers her shameful name and he gives her his name. She's invited into his life, his family, his inheritance. And through her prince, she can call a king father and all because of their marriage union. That's what Jesus provides for us. It's just like that with Jesus. When we receive what he's done for us, all that is ours, all that we are responsible for, the sin and the curse becomes his. He paid it all off on the cross and all that is his. His righteousness and his inheritance and the joy, the fellowship that he's enjoyed with God for all eternity, he gives to us. It becomes ours. And so if we're one with Jesus, then we're adopted into his family. We have his spirit as our spirit. We have his father as our father. We belong to his brothers and sisters in the, in the church. We call upon the same father and hear his love spoken to us. You are my child who I love. You I am well pleased with. Because of Christ, he sees us because he sees his son. These are our pledges now. And the Bible says that one day Jesus Christ will return. He will set feet on this earth again and will also share again in his physical eternal life. He'll raise us up bodily and he'll set the world to how it should be. And on that day, God will judge the world forever confirming their choice. Forever confirming their choice to stay in Adam's identity instead of Christ. But God calls us to say no to Adam and yes to Christ through his crucifixion and resurrection. So when we're, uh, uh, as human beings, we're one with Adam. But you know what? There's no future in that life. We are moving on the conveyor belt to destruction. And with arms outstretched on the cross, as we, as we pondered Good Friday, Jesus gives you an offer. He offers you a gift. He, he makes a proposal. He offers you himself, his very life, his family, his future. He's yours if you'll have him. Be one with Jesus. And so the three invite you in. The, the two determine the world. And the question is, will you be one with the Son of God? Will you be one with the Son of God? You, perhaps you, you might, uh, uh, you, 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 you are, you understand where you are and I mean, you understand what God has offered you in Christ just from these few words this morning and, and you want to call upon God and perhaps you would say something like this, Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for my life. There are things deeply embedded in me that go against your love. I live for myself and I repent. I am sorry of that. And thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to rescue me. Thank you that he lived my life and he died my death. Thank you that he rose again to offer me new life. And upon your word of what you said, God, about the gift that you offer me, I receive this gift. I trust Jesus to be my rescuer and my ruler, my master, and I will walk with you from now on. Send your Holy Spirit to live within me, to bring your unfailing love, your presence, and to place me into 
your church where I grow and live out this new life. Well, when we look at these words here up on the screen and that he died for all, that's exactly what we're talking about. He died for all. Jesus of Nazareth, the one promised in Genesis 3.15, who at the announcement of Adam and his sin, God said, I will send one through the descendant of the woman who will crush the serpent, the deceiver's head, and who uh, whose heel will be bruised, but who will live and be raised again for mankind. Notice what the verse says. He died for all. He died for all. Friends, there is not a person in this room to whom God is not offering his free gift. That idea for all is the idea of in the place of substitution. Jesus died for all in the place of for the benefit of another. And the question is, well, who did he die for? Well, the scripture says all. And the reason he died for all is because all are sinners. All are sinners. All are in this position. Not a human being has ever been born except for Jesus Christ, the perfect one, who has been able to say, I am perfect before you, God. I love you with all my heart, soul, and mind all the time, and I love my neighbor as I'm commanded to. No, there is only one who had the capacity to stand in place of all humanity. In fact, we see this in verse 21, don't we? For he has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, to be our sin offering, who knew no sin, who was perfect, who was full of perfect goodness, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Only one had the capacity to stand in place of the other humans. We need someone who fits this description, one who knew no sin to die for our sins so that we don't die in our sins. We needed the perfect sin bearer. In 1943, 230 women were arrested as members of the French resistance to Burkina. Only 49 uh, survived, but this in itself is very remarkable. These women were as diverse a group as could be imagined. Jews, Christians, aristocrats, working class, young and old. But they were united in their commitment to the French resistance against the German Nazis and to one another. In her book, A Train in Winter, Carolyn Moorhead reconstructs the story of these women through their journals and some of the memoirs of the survivors. And the solidarity of these women sustained them through incredible horror and torture in these Nazi concentration camps. In contrast, other many other Holocaust survivors uh, would, would hoard whatever meager resource uh, resources they could save for themselves. And it would be hard to blame them, wouldn't they? Survival is the only goal, no matter what the cost, even to others. But in the case with these French women in Burkina, their solidarity toward each other trumped the selfishness that seemed to uh, engulf so many others. And Carolyn Moorhead writes, Knowing that the fate of each depended on the others, egotism seemed to vanish. And that, stripped back to the bare edge of survival, each rose to behavior few would have believed themselves capable of. And she recounts that when uh, there was there was one who was so thirsty and their their thirst was not relieved and they're so thirsty they threatened to to uh, to to go mad that the women pulled together their own meager rations of water to get her a whole bucket of water. That kind of love is is very rare, isn't it? Uh, putting your own needs first is as natural to us as breathing, isn't it? 
and just as unconscious, we don't even think about it. We're, we're built for self-preservation, aren't we? That's the nature of Adam that's in us. Yet the women of this French resistance really are, provide a model of what Christ has done for us. But there's a couple big differences there. You see, Jesus willingly chose to stand with us in our sin and our suffering. And he did it when we were enemies. He walked among humans, accusing the very least of these, and he chose to share the horror of human death. And even after the victory of his resurrection from death, this one who who is risen from the dead still bears in his body the wounds, the scars of his suffering. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so that's what it's talking about in that first phrase, and that he died for all. Now notice again the verse here, because now we see the goal of our salvation. The goal of Jesus' death and resurrection was not so that you would live long, you would live longer in your condition in Adam. To live for yourself. But the goal of Jesus' salvation, what your salvation is for, is so that you live for Jesus now. You live the life of Jesus in you. God has put eternal life, the life of God inside of you. If you uh, believe uh, with all your heart upon this message that Jesus has died for your sins and He's risen again to give you new life, God puts this new life in you. He regenerates you. He makes you reborn. Notice what He says that they which live should not henceforth no longer live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That's the movement of the gospel. Here's what Jesus has done. Here is why he has done it. To change us from Adam's to the perfect Adam, the new Adam, Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the gospel here. The goal of all that Christ has done for us is to change life by eradicating living for self to living for Christ. You know that living for yourself is what the Bible calls sin. It's a violation of purpose. You could say and define sin uh, as, as doing bad things, can't you? I mean, you can talk about, right, stealing and, 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 and coveting things that uh, that don't belong to you and never being satisfied or, or murder, right? Or, um, uh, kids the way you treat your parents, right? You can talk about, uh, sin as, as doing bad things, but it's even more than that, isn't it? It goes deeper than that because our sin is deeply rooted in our hearts. It's more fundamentally making even good things into ultimate things. The Bible says you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, your, your, your full and fo- uh, your full focus and attention should be on the one true God, the three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, and what He's revealed for you. But we've fallen short of that. And part of sin is building your life and your meaning on anything, even could be a very good thing in one sense, but more than on God. And God doesn't tolerate that. Whatever we build our life on drives us and enslaves us. And we call that idolatry. Idolatry, worshiping idols, false gods. It's centering your life in the things that are not to be the highest things. Um, there's, there's a, there's a, uh, uh, there's a brokenness that comes from idolatry. For example, let me give you some, some examples. 
If you center your life and identity on your spouse or your partner or other relationships, human relationships, there's things that result from that that are disordered. Uh, you could be emotionally dependent. You could be jealous. You could be controlling, right? Other person's problems can be overwhelming to you. God's given us relationships as a gift, but they are not to be the ultimate thing. Our relationship with God is to be the ultimate thing. What if you center your life and identity on one of God's wonderful gifts to us, your family and your children? I would say in our society, that's something certainly that is missing, isn't it? The, the importance of family, the core value of family and your children. And, and there are many wonderful people uh, who, 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 uh, who love their families. But if you take that and you put that above God, you know what happens? One of the things that could happen is you try to live your life through your children. And your children may begin to resent you. Or when they don't meet your expectations... There's all kinds of abuse that comes out of our mouths and a pushing down, suppressing, right? Because it's a disordered love. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you could be a driven, driven workaholic, right? Or a boring, boring, shallow person, right? Uh, you, you, you very likely could lose family and friends, and that happens all over corporate America, doesn't it? People spend hours and hours in the office pursuing this goal and neglect Family, right? And if you center your life and identity on money and possessions, the more you have, you know, the more you worry about. Jealousy comes in. You may be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle. You're all about a certain lifestyle. It blows up your life. If you center your life and identity on pleasure or gratification or comfort, you probably find yourself addicted to something. And by the way, all these things are addictions, aren't they, in one way or the other? You'll be looking for escape strategies in the hardness of life, and that'll drive you. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you'll be overhurt by criticism and losing friends, and you'll fear confronting others with the truth and be a useless friend. If you center your life and identity even on noble causes, you can start to look at people and miss the image of God in them and begin to demonize people. You center your life on just simply living a good life. right? Without Christ, if you're living up to your moral standards, you'll think you'll be doing good, but guess what you're going to be, how you're going to be looking at other people who don't live up to your moral standards. Or when you fail in your own moral standards that you have set up, you're going to be proud, you're going to be self-righteous and cruel, your, your, your guilt will be utterly devastating. And, and all I'm saying is all these things are not necessarily bad things, but putting them above God is where we have gone wrong in our hearts. That's what it means to live for ourselves. Let me unpack that a little bit more. One of the barriers that hold many people back from knowing and being filled with and being controlled by the love of Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. The love of Christ constrains us. It's the word that means controls. What Christ has done in his death and resurrection is to be the motivating factor. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is to be the motivating factor for all that we do. Well, one of the barriers that holds people back from that is the idea that true happiness can only be found if I am free to live for myself. 
Now, just about every Disney movie tells us this. You can be whatever you want to be, right? Uh, uh, all kinds of inspirational stories about this person who believed in themselves and worked hard and they reached this result. They don't tell you the thousands of others where that didn't happen, right? Living for yourself is the default option in your software and your heart. It's always on. That means that unless something outside of us that comes inside of us brings about a change, we end up living for ourselves. The Bible says it quite clearly in Philippians 2.21. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, Paul says. But there's an absolute misery in that position. Because what happens is you become the master of your fate and you become the slave to you as your master. Let me explain this. If you live yourself, you make yourself both the boss and the servant. You have this kingdom, right? You put yourself on both sides of the ledger. You're the one who is served and you're the one who does the serving. The demands you set are the demands you must meet. It's like robbing Peter to pay Paul and you end up in conflict. Let me give you some examples to kind of build on some of the ones I've already given. What about somebody who lives for their good looks? Right? You look in the mirror. And self, the boss, is not happy because of what they see. They need to have this more pleasing image, this certain image. And though they have forgotten the truth, that they have been woven together wonderfully by God, all they see are the imperfections in their bodies or their face, right? Fashion magazines, fashion shows, their truth, that's where they go for the blueprints of how they're supposed to look in the eyes of a very critical and materialistic world that will chew you up and spit you out. Self, the boss, is always displeased, never happy, right? You can spend hours at the gym sculpting your body. You can, or, or hours at the mirror putting on makeup. Hours of dressing to please the world's taste. And so, you know what happens? Self, the boss, starts beating up on self, the servant. Never pretty enough, never good looking enough. And instead of soaking in God's truth, that before God you are made in His image, and you are made for this purpose, Punish themselves with lies. Fears of rejection. You better step and cultivate this beauty or you'll be lost forever to this world. Right? It's a false good news. That's one example. Or maybe the individual who has been looking forward to retirement forever. Right? And they work and struggle through life and the life that they picture doesn't turn out to what it what they thought it would be, and and uh, and they always think oh, I should accomplish more. They, the day comes for retirement, and then they begin look back at everything they've done, and they have regrets, all kinds of regrets. And sell the boss says, "You wasted time. You wasted these gifts. You wasted these money. You wasted these relationships. You never became what I thought you would become." And then self the servant starts to drink away the memories or try to plug those holes with other things, right? He puts on a mask of perhaps false contentment here, but he's living in failure. Or the one who's the frantic executive. They they have work achievements and bank accounts, but they never can live up to those demands and money and approval from higher-ups and the goals for this year determine their happiness. So that if there's any lacking, the self, the boss, grows more displeased, irritated with others, and fearful of failure. And they see your neighbor pull up in the new car they got from their bonus this year. 
And so what does self the servant do to serve self the boss? Well, he throws himself into more work, tries to find ways to flatter and appease and make more money and buy more expensive items and earn good the good graces of others, but never satisfied. Or what about the concerned parent? You look at your children and you see here is an opportunity to carry on the academic success of the Bickle family, a legacy, right? Your children make poor decisions or there's learning disorders, or they don't pick up this as fast as maybe you did, or they run into relational troubles with other children, or they're being bullied by other children, or they struggle in their in their work, and, and that parent wrings their hands, frustration, wondering where they went wrong, fearful the outcome of the children, because you thought success lay in your own hands, and you believe that lie. And you redefine success. Or maybe... Maybe it could be the Christian who's working hard in the flesh, working hard in their own power. Uh, you see some good things in your life, and you think that that has come from the hours that I have put in studying the Bible. Study your Bible, good thing. The hours that I have put in in prayer, the, uh, the, 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 the services that I have checked off at church. And so you read that checklist here. Yep, done this, done this, done this. And then they realize the fruit of humility is missing. Being able to listen. Uh, realizing that when your comfort zone is infringed upon, you really start to strike back. <laughs> and, and there's, 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 the, the, you, you think, what do I, what do I do to fix the problem? And you forget that sanctification growing in Christ is by grace. Yes, He uses these things. But it's by grace and God works in you. Your salvation, you work out your salvation as God is working in you. And you forget that. Forget it's by faith. And grace comes through humility. And you think, how do I fix the problem? I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. And all those things are true, but you're forgetting that it comes not by the works, the law, but it comes through God's grace. And you're not resting in God's grace. You're doing it in your own power. That could be another subtle, twisted way of living for self. Christ died and rose again to deliver us from that. And suppose you say, this is no good. I'm living for myself. I'm not, I'm, I'm not happy. I'm being too hard on myself. I just need to lighten up and give myself a break. Well, guess what self the boss says when self the servant says they're taking a break. Right? It's a problem. It's a nightmare. In all ridge, it's, there's no way to win. And all around us is a culture that says, live for yourself. And the Bible says that Jesus came into the world so we live another way. In this passage, you see a couple times where he talks about no longer, no longer, and no longer do you live for yourself. You live for Christ by the grace that he's given you. No longer are you an old creation with Adam. The Bible says in the next few verses in 5.17, you are a new creation. Self is a pretender. It's an imposter. But when the true king is there, there is peace and rest. You know, the thing about change is that it always requires an uncomfortable truth, an unpopular truth for our good. Think about Christmas again. Christmas, one of the things about Christmas is one of, is the receiving of gifts of presents, right? And, but sometimes there's certain kinds of gifts that are hard to receive. 
For example, there's some gifts that make you swallow your pride. Imagine that you opened a present from uh, Chris this morning from a friend, and it's a dieting book. <laughs> right? Then you unwrap the next present, and you find it's another book from another friend, and the title is Overcoming Selfishness. Now, if you say to them, thank you so much, you are admitting, I am overweight and I am obnoxious. Right? Right? In other words, there's some gifts that are hard to receive. They're both gifts. But because to do so is to admit you have problems, you have flaws, you have weaknesses you need needed to change. Or perhaps you had a, a friend who heard that you were in some financial trouble. And they came and they offered a large sum of money to get you out of your predicament. And if that happened to you, you probably had to swallow your pride to receive that gift. Right? But I want to tell you what Jesus did at the cross. He died and rose again. He, there has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ demands of us. The gift of Jesus Christ says you are lost and you cannot save yourself. The gift of Jesus Christ says that we're so lost, we're so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God Himself could save us. That means you and I are not somebodies who can pull ourselves together and live in the way that God has called us to live. See, what's going on in our hearts is that they are divided. We could, you could picture your, your heart like a, like a boardroom, a business boardroom. Imagine your heart as a, as a big a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, and the whiteboard in the boardroom, right? There's a committee that sits around the table of your heart. Did you know that? Maybe it's work. Maybe it's your uh, your sexual desires. Maybe it's comforts. No, there's there's a lot of board members there, right? And this committee is always arguing and debating, and each one of them wants to be the one that 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 they get, has the loudest voice, and and they never come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. And and we begin to tell ourselves, well, I'm this way because I have so many responsibilities. But the truth is, we are divided, we are unfocused, we're hesitant, we're unfree. And 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 how that boardroom is is. How a lot of people may see Jesus. Well, I'm going to add him to one of the seats at the table. I'm going to add another voice. And maybe we'll listen to this voice more and more or here and there. I'm going to accept Jesus this way. I'm going to invite him into the committee. I'm going to give him a vote too. But you know what? That's just adding Jesus to more complications, isn't it? Jesus doesn't work that way, does he? Because Jesus is king. Jesus is king, and Jesus won't become just one more complication. The way the scripture tells us that we receive Jesus is to say, uh-uh, what I'm doing isn't working. I'm broken. I'm messed up. And I need you to take over the boardroom here. I need you to come in and fire the committee. Every last one of them. I am handing myself over to you. I'm your responsibility now. Run my life. Run my life. You see, accepting Jesus is an adding Jesus. Like a salad bar. Oh, I like ranch and there's a, there's a sunflower seeds. Oh, there's a little bit of Jesus. No. Jesus gives you the bowl of himself. All of himself. The whole Christ. 
the whole Christ. He takes what the living for self has at the end destination. And, and, and Jesus is about not, not about turning over a new leaf, trying something new, trying harder now, pulling myself up by my own bootstraps here and attaching Jesus' name to it. No, it is, it is, it is receiving Christ's life. It is, it is giving him mine. It is, it is, it is taking my, my crumpled report card and saying, here it is, God. Here's what I've done. And it's receiving his perfect record. You see, it's something only God can do. It's asking God to make you reborn. Perhaps you've heard the term being born again, being reborn. And regeneration, being reborn happens by trusting what God has provided for you, his gift. He'll take what the living for self has at the end destination. You know what the end destination of that is? We sang it in one of the songs earlier this morning. With Christ, we have no guilt in life, no fear of death, right? And that's what living for self has at the end destination. It sounds good. It's all wrapped up, but inside it's a rotting corpse. It's fear of death and eternal hell. And Jesus, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, he transfers you to new life and he puts the life of God in you and he puts you on the path of his pure goodness and eternal life with him so that when, uh, so that you have Jesus through your hard times in life. Life won't be easier, but he gives you the peace that comes from being rock solid in Jesus. And when you leave this world, You go to the next to be with him forever. Do you remember when you brought home your first kid from the hospital? I remember Brooklyn in 2005, our first kid. And we had a little Toyota Echo two-door. And we put the car seat in and... And, uh, and they were getting Belle ready and, you know, rolling her down the stairs here with babe in her lap in the wheelchair to wait outside. It was December in Oregon. And uh, I drove the car up to pick her up and, and picked her up and put her in that car seat. And you looked at her and this car seat just looks huge, right? It's huge. It's huge. It's, it looks way too big. She, she looks so fragile. And we had to drive down the freeway and I felt like I was going 35 miles an hour. You know, making sure I didn't hit any bumps or potholes. That first day when your kid is with you in the car, it's a scary day, isn't it? It's a really scary day. And they tell me that the next scary day with your kid in the car is when you give Rowan and Warren the keys. Right? <laughs> it's when they're 16 and you're handing over the keys. They're moving from the passenger seat, the ride-along seat, into the driver's seat. That's a scary moment. Now, why is that scary? Well, it's a big moment in life when you hand someone the keys, isn't it? Right Up, up till then, with your kids, you've been driving, you've been choosing the destination, uh, the radio station, the, the amount of heat and comfort uh, in the car. And, and, and by the way, our rule is whoever's driving gets to do that. All right. So passengers can't adjust the volume. They can't adjust what temperature it is in the vehicle. Whoever's driving, that, they, get to, they get to do that. Am I the only one? <laughs> All right, okay. Um, but, but, uh, but you use the speed, you're in the drive along seat. I'm really scared about my daughter, Violet, when it's time for her to drive because she has this drive and this bent to go fast. And so when I go past Vic's hardware store down the hill there, she says, Oh, good speed, dad, good speed. And I'm thinking, well, I appreciate that, but I'm a little worried about when it's time to hand over the keys to you, right? 
And she's really frustrated with red light. She says, Dad, why are you stopping? He's like, honey, it's a red light or a stop sign. And, and she goes, so? <laughs> I can understand it. You don't really need to use those in Maine that much. but um, Anyway, but if we're going to change seats, if you're going to drive, i got to trust you, right? It's about control. Whoever is in that seat has control. And a lot of people find Jesus handy to have in the car as long as in the passenger seat or in the back seat, right? Or something may may come up where they require services. God, I have this problem. I have this health problem, right? Or God, I'm in this financial hole. Or, or I'm in this relation, relation problem. I need some help. I want you in the car, but I'm not so sure I want you driving. And if Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge anymore. I'm not in charge of my wallet. I'm not in charge of the priorities of my relationships. He is. I'm not in charge of my ego. I don't have one. He's crushed that at the cross. It's him and him alone who's to reign. I don't have the right to satisfy every self-centered ambition to do what I want to do. No, it's his agenda, isn't it? It's his life. I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. I don't get to gossip. I don't get to chatter. I don't get to cajole. I don't get to deceive. I don't get to rage. I don't get to intimidate, to manipulate or exaggerate. I got to get in the driver's seat and I got to go sit in the back and hand the keys to him. But you know what? That's when you're fully engaged. That's when you're alive more than when you were in the driver's seat. It's not my life anymore. It's his life. And that's what Paul is saying in this verse. That he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. It's because Jesus just died and rose again. It's the same power in this verse that raised Jesus from the dead out of the tomb that crucifies with him the old person, that old living for self that I am without Jesus' center, and raises me with the purpose of the gospel to new life in him as a new creation. In fact, look at verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That doesn't mean he's not going to live in a a world that's broken, that has uh, disasters, that has sufferings, but will have temptations. But what it does mean is he gives you the power in that. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now that resurrection power that comes, the one who died and rose for us, is transferred to us too. And, and, and I want us to, 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 to think about here as I close here that resurrection. Jesus died Friday. He's in the cold slab of the tomb, that rock tomb in Israel. Saturday, Silence. Sunday, raised from the dead. Imagine with me, and imagine me as I read some words through uh, from 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 Andrew Peterson describing this resurrection power that comes with Jesus. His heart beats, his blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago, and his heart beats. Now everything is changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins, and his heart beats. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. He is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. And his heart beats. He 
He rises, glorified in flesh, clothed in immortality, the firstborn from the dead. He rises as works already done. So he's resting as he rises to reclaim the bride he won. And his heart beats. His heart beats. He will never die again. I know that death no longer has dominion over him. So my heart beats with the rhythm of the saints as I look for the seeds the king has sown to burst up from their graves. So crown him the Lord of life. Crown him the Lord of love. Crown him the Lord of all. He took one breath and put death to death. Where is your sting, O grave? How grave is your defeat? I know, I know his heart beats. And that is exactly what this verse delivers to us. Say it with me. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Brothers and sisters, that's the life he calls us to through the resurrection. Now, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, I want to give you permission to hold us accountable to that. I'll give you permission to observe our lives as we stand before God. That This is the crux of why our heart beats. And as you see us in our failures, repenting and turning to faith in God, and as you see us uh, in our struggles and the trials that come upon us, and you see us shedding off self more and more, I want you to understand that that bears great testimony to the truth of the gospel. And so believers, we stand here with a great call, don't we? But we stand here with a great power. A great power that's supplied by our Lord Jesus. Jesus provides all that is necessary for you to give Him the wheel. He's died for our sin. He's risen again for new life. And He invites you to call upon Him to be rescued from where self is taking you on the road to destruction and be reborn in His new life. Will you come to Jesus? His blood will wash away the old Adam and He'll put into you the life of Jesus. He's worthy. I wonder if heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Just bow your head and close your eyes and just listen for a minute here. I wonder this morning if you would say, wow, um, I really recognize the thing that my life has been living for and it's not for Jesus Christ. And I have never come to Jesus Christ in full dependence and trust for what He has done for me and believe that He has taken my old life, my sin, and He has died and paid the penalty for that. And He offers me new life in Christ through His resurrection to live in fullness. And today is a day I'm calling upon the Lord in faith to receive His gift for the first time. If there's anyone here this morning, I wonder if you just simply quietly lift your hand as heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And we can uh, minister to you through other servants of Jesus Christ and hear the life-changing truths of the gospel and begin to hear your story and begin to show you how you can live in God's story by Jesus' work. Anyone here with a lifted hand? And his heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Believers who are here this morning, this resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. If it is not true that Jesus walked out of the tomb, we should pack up and go home. We should go just live for ourselves, party up, do whatever, do whatever we want. But if it is true 
Jesus has claim, absolute claim on your life. And therefore, since he died for all, those which live, those which have received him, should not henceforth live unto themselves, should not any longer live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Perhaps the Holy Spirit's revealing areas in your life where you have priorities out of order. You have loves that had been turned to the wrong things. Maybe not even bad things, but in the wrong order. And Jesus Christ needs to not merely be prominent, but Jesus Christ needs to be preeminent. Take the moment here. Seek His forgiveness. Thank Him for His grace. Thank You for His blood that washes away our sins. Thank You that He is faithful and just to do that. He is worthy.